This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. And, uh, and, and when you pitch the question, should we talk about what the question asks or should we just talk about whatever we <laughs> Bob, I'm not going to tell you this. <laughs> I know better. <laughs> I, I'm just going to say, you thank feel. you, Jen. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Are as people shapes who we are as teachers about how our lived experience informs our teaching uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this you're, you're free to do that we don't have to have it perfect we are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life the key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively we have so much to learn from the other side of campus <laughs> from the university of texas at austin this is The Other Side of Campus. Hi, I'm Jen Moon from the College of Natural Sciences. And I'm Stephanie seidel Holmston, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. Today, we are thrilled to have as our guests Dr. Art Markman and Dr. Bob Duke. Many of us know them from their very popular radio show and podcast, Two Guys on Your Head, as well as faculty colleagues. I'm a self-described super fan of both of them. Dr. Bob Duke is a Marlene and Morton Meyerson Centennial Professor and Head of Music and Human Learning at UT Austin. He is a University and University of Texas System Distinguished Teaching Professor. Welcome, Bob. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. Nice to be here. And Dr. Art Markman is a Professor of Psychology, Human Dimensions of Organization and Marketing, and Executive Director of the IC Squared Institute. His research explores reasoning, decision-making, and motivation. He brings insight from cognitive science to a broader audience through his blogs at Psychology Today and Fast Company, and has written several books, including Smart Thinking, Brain Briefs, and Bring Your Brain to Work. Welcome, Art. Thanks, Stephanie. Good to be here. So we know that you've both thought quite a bit about effective thinking and learning. So let's start by defining that. What is effective learning? I, you know, I, I think a lot of times learning is defined by tasks that schools assign to people. And many of those tasks are not necessarily meaningful. So I think one of the things to add in the effective part is that learning is actually meaningful. And, you know, all of us who've been teaching a long time and we've all been teaching for a while, you know, know that we have a tremendous uh, influence over how students uh, see our subject matter uh, by the things that we ask them to do with it. And I, and I think, you know, often when you look at the university catalog, you'll see that most of the courses are labeled by the content that they cover. Uh, you know, this is about the history of United States from 1865 to the present or, you know, something like that, or this is by, this is organic chemistry or whatever. And what they're not labeled by are the skills that ostensibly are cultivated in those classes. And, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that people would even think to ask the question, what is effective thinking, is that that's not really on the minds of a lot of people who are teaching various subject matter. So, uh, you know, I, this is not an, an indictment of, uh, you know, uncaring colleagues. It's just that as knowledge has proliferated over the centuries, uh, subject matters get stuffed with more and more content, and then classes get stuffed with more and more of that content. And the idea of thinking and reflection and analyzing and problem solving uh, 
uh, are not necessarily prominent features of what students do in a university. Yeah. And I, I would say, so I, I, I did a book several years ago called Smart Thinking. And, and the premise of the book was that, that was you have to start by defining what smart thinking is. And I, and I gave a very simple definition, which is to say that you want to acquire some pretty good habits that enable you to acquire high quality knowledge and then to be able to use that knowledge when you need it. And, and high quality knowledge means really being able to explain the way the world around you works to be able to answer that question, why? And, and then the ability to, to be able to use that knowledge when you need it. And what's fascinating is because so many of our courses are organized around particular content, the use of that knowledge is basically to answer the exam questions in that class, after which it may not ever be relevant again. And we don't spend a lot of time asking people to think about how what they're learning might actually be relevant for other situations in their lives. So when we when we develop the particularly the undergraduate version of the Human Dimensions of Organizations program, our, our focus was how do you take a liberal arts education and have students extract the underlying lessons about the human condition that pervade liberal arts courses and to, and to have those at the ready so that when they bump into people again in their lives, that maybe they have learned something that will help them to understand them as individuals or in their group dynamics or in the cultural influences that have affected them. And so it, it really was all about that kind of transfer. And to me, effective learning is learning that enables you to apply that knowledge at some point in the future to do something that you needed to do that wasn't just to answer an exam question. Yeah. And just to jump in on one thing that Art said about, you know, the underlying rationale and principles of a liberal arts education, I'm not sure that those principles are high on the minds of students who are studying liberal arts. You know, I mean, when we ever are called on to defend a liberal arts education, we talk about all this stuff about being able to think critically and do all these kinds of things, except, you know, I'm a student, I got a history class, I got to remember this stuff and I got to write this paper. And the idea about this reaching beyond what I'm doing is, is not really often on many students' minds. But, but I think the thing that's important about this to emphasize, just to amplify something that Art's saying, the usefulness of this is not necessarily a utilitarian usefulness. I mean, a lot of things are useful because they're, they're nice to think about, you know, and, and they, they, they bring you pleasure because you can understand something. One of my favorite retorts to students when they ask the question, when am I ever going to use this? You know, my the, the question I post them is, would you go to a movie last week? I say, yeah, yeah. I said, you like it? Yeah, I would like it. I said, when are you ever going to use that? You know, as if, you know, why, why would we think that every moment that we spend in activity should have some utilitarian function that's either going to raise my salary or get me a better job or find me a better mate or whatever the hell is on my mind right now? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to contemplate because that's not what the focus is when we're in the midst of teaching and learning. It's not those big ideas. But you know, Bob, it's funny because when somebody says to me, when am I ever going to use this? What I usually say is if you don't learn it, how will you ever know? <laughs> so look at this. In, in the, we're in the first 15 minutes of the podcast. You got two clever retorts for students already. And we're just 15 minutes in. The thinking of this podcast is blowing my mind. <laughs> So 
So let's push a little more. Um, sort of what strategies do you use to build that capacity for effective learning? Well, I, you know, I think one thing that has to happen is you have to change the ways that we ask students to demonstrate what they've learned. I mean, nothing screws up learning like evaluation. You know, a lot of people think that's the, boy, you know, that's how we know whether we're doing something. Well, actually, we, we know something when we conduct assessments, but we may not know what we think we're trying to find out. And, and, and most assessments, I think, are, are pretty bad at assessing the principles that Art was talking about. I mean, there's an inverse relationship between the importance of what's assessed and how easy it is to assess it. And by easy, I mean unambiguous. Yeah, you know, when I ask somebody who's teaching chemistry, for example, what do you really care about? You know, and I say, well, well, I want I want my students to be, you know, good thinkers and be able to solve problems and pose interesting questions and things. And then I ask, is any of that on any of your exams? No, I got to balance these equations and all the stuff I got to do, and I've got to get through the book chapter. And well, then how do students know that that's the really important stuff if the stuff that we're evaluating isn't that? <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, it's funny. There's two pieces to this. You have to model it a lot too, right? They're not, the, the students are not going to, to pick up on how to do some of these things without walking them through the process several times. And, and you may walk, it, walk them through it the first time by actually stepping all the way through it yourself and then leaving some gaps that they get to fill in until eventually they can run the whole thing themselves. And, and in fact, you know, to, to Bob's point about evaluation, the, the final project in the intro to the Human Dimensions of Organizations class that I was teaching involved having the students write a short paper about a, something they learned in another class that they had to apply to the themes of of HDO of which which were uh, you know had to do with things like negotiation and uh, and and uh, you know establishing a vision for the future and so and so and so really if what we want people to do is to find the hidden lessons in their classes we made them do it with some other class they were taking it was built into the evaluation process. as you're saying that it's making it's reminding me of a conversation I've been a part of about how one of the goals we'd like is for our students to change their minds. I used to think one way and now I think this other way. And what was that process and how does that happen? Yeah. And some number of our students, I guess, just say, you know what, I don't want this college education after all. I don't, I don't think that's what we're after. Yeah. You know, that thing though about the mind ch- changing thing. I, I just, I just think there's a fundamental disconnect between what universities and colleges in the abstract think we're for and what many students think we're for, you know? And, and I think, you know, part of the problem is that we, even though I think there's a greater consensus among the faculty than there appears to be because the topic is so seldom brought up, but, but it was certainly not expressed, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, we have, you know, the core values of the university. And we have these words that are very hoity-toity and sound very high-minded and things. But just because you stick that on page nine of your syllabus doesn't mean anybody's going to take that seriously, that this is something that's really, you know, central to the university. And, and I, you know, I don't, I don't think that's an unfixable problem. I, I just think what it takes is leadership. You know, I mean, if somebody were to say, what, what does this institution really care about? Uh, I'm not sure you'd get a consensus 
that's, you know, has most of the people in the university on the same page. Well, if that's the case, and students are taking five classes a semester from five different people who have five different ideas about what a university education is supposed to be, it's not surprising that they don't develop a notion of what a university education to be is somewhat different than what they came in with when they matriculated. There, there's another thing too, which is, I mean, in this, this, you know, the, the, the fundamental difficulty many of us face as teachers at the college level is that we we never really learn to teach. I mean, you know, maybe we we, we muddle through it. But, you know, what we did was we got, we fell in love with a with an academic discipline. And and what we did was to, 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 to actually do the one thing that most universities spend all of their time teaching, which is how to how to be a mini-me, right? So so the, the goal of, of the curricula in most departments, not all, but most departments, is to create academics of the form that 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 exists in that department. And, and so a student who successfully internalizes that then goes on to graduate school and then becomes a professor and says, oh, my goal is to perpetuate my species. And, and uh, the, the problem with that is actually a vanishingly small number of our students are actually going to take that path. And, and a vanishingly small number of the students who take our particular class are going to go into our particular discipline. And so... We, we then need to be teaching something else, but, but sadly, many of us haven't ever done anything else. And so then we, you know, we, 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 we really have to think a lot about what, what are those other things that people do that where, where the, the stuff that I'm teaching them might turn out to be useful. And, and that's a, there's, there's actually not a tremendous amount of reward within the system to do that. You know, the, the, the kinds of people who win teaching awards find ways to, to, to motivate themselves to do it and then transmit that to their students. But, but it's not because the institution has said that a fundamental aspect of, of what it means to teach is to be thinking about what our students are going to be doing after they get out in a way that helps us to prepare them to be good thinkers, whether they're going to use that particular knowledge for a, a, for their jobs or just for their adult lives, yeah. uh, we're we're not. I don't think we're thinking that way in the kind of backward design that we're doing for 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 constructing classes. You know, I, I'll say one thing about about that. It, it has to do. You know, when Art was, Art was saying, <clears throat> well, you know, we we don't do other things. Well, perhaps not professionally. But, but I think most of my colleagues, most of our colleagues who we know on this campus, uh, lived what I would consider to be well-lived lives. You know, I, I mean, they have a breadth of experiences. And even though they may specialize very narrowly in their field, in their department or whatever, and often I think we're reticent to speak about the things other than our a specialization that we're officially here to talk about. You know, I mean, I, I, I've heard many people, and I'm sure you have too, uh, respond to a student who poses a question in class who's about something that's tangentially related to whatever the topic is in the class. And we go, oh, you'll have to ask pro 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 uh, Professor Jones about that because I'm, I'm not a specialist in this. And basically what we teach students inadvertently in that is that if, you're, if you don't have a PhD in something and, and, and you've already earned tenure, 
just keep your mouth shut about it because you need to go to somebody else who's much more qualified than you to talk about it. That's a mistake, right? Because what we what we then convey inadvertently is that if if you're not in, at the top of a field, then you have nothing to say about this subject matter. People should have a lot of stuff to say about the subject matter. Yeah. And I'm going to pile on on this because we actually, we, we don't just teach it inadvertently. We teach it advertently. Uh, in our, <laughs> that should be a word. If it's not, it should be. It is, I'm, it is I'm, that. I vote for that. We, but we, we purposefully teach that in, in, in the way we construct exams. I mean, it's rare that somebody builds an exam in which we encourage people to bring in knowledge that they learned somewhere else to answer a question in your class. In fact, if a student goes off and starts talking about something that they did in another class, you're looking at these exam questions saying, don't you understand how exams work? And, <laughs> That's totally and, true. <laughs> and, and what that does is to teach our students that knowledge is actually supposed to be used very narrowly. Yeah. As opposed to building an exam that says, no, I want you to bring in everything you've ever experienced. It's all fair game if it's gonna help you to answer this question. Yeah, and, and what that reminds students is how much they learn and that they know from informal experiences that we tend not to even acknowledge uh, in school. You know, I mean, there, to talk about a first semester biology course as a beginning biology course, I mean, you're teaching the course to biological organisms. They know a lot about biology. They are biology, you know, but we teach like, okay, you don't know anything. So here's the, and, and basically when you, when you talk to people like that, what you're really saying is you don't know the lingo, you know, I mean, what else is there? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. You know the right things. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, 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 and the thing is that, that idea that the stuff that you already know is not a value uh, creates a different kind of expectation on the part of students. And it, and it understandably isolates the school experience from the rest of life. You know, I mean, what, what's, what, what's interesting to me and, and Art touched on this a little while ago about, well, does, are the things that people are learning, do those things have value outside of my class or outside of the university? And there are a lot of things that people know that can have social value but we never prompt them to take that knowledge outside of the exam or outside of the university. You know, I mean, one of the things that I've encouraged people to do in working with the Sanger Learning Center and this push thing that I did a couple of years ago was having students who learn things in their first semester, whatever classes they're in, pick something they think is really interesting and then share that with a relative. You know, to so because usually if somebody takes a, a first semester chemistry class, what their parents know of what they learned in chemistry is they got a good grade in chemistry. That's it. You know, and there are actually some interesting things that they may have learned about chemistry that they would actually enjoy. Yeah. Enjoy explaining to a parent and a parent would be absolutely thrilled to hear their kid explain this thing that they didn't know anything about. Totally. Totally. And it's also an issue of inclusion to be able yeah. to pull students lived experiences and validate them as part of this body of knowledge that we're building yeah. at the university. Yeah, yeah. And Art, as you were mentioning, this idea of, of modeling, you know, in some ways the academy sort of models what a faculty member looks like in our hiring practices too, right? How do we make this academy accessible to the lived experiences of students and students from a variety of backgrounds? Because we do model that. 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely right. And and students are drawing all sorts of lessons from us. And some of those are the ones that are in the syllabus, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but not all. It's a nice segue into this other topic that I wanted to ask you guys about is, it's come up in this podcast previously that this whole idea of us teaching remotely and doing this totally new thing for many of us has allowed us, given us the gift as faculty to model failure, <laughs> which is not is not something <laughs> that feels comfortable. But as we've pointed out earlier, others on this podcast pointed out earlier, we don't really model failure for them. We say you should fail and you should be comfortable failing, uh, but we're not going to do it for well, you. Because I've got it all together. I've got I mean, it all I, mean my, I left my failure back in my 30s. So I'm, I'm right. done with that now. And, and uh, since then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'd, like, I'd like to be clear. I was always ahead of I was always ahead of the curve. I think my students have always found me remote. <laughs> <laughs> He's a trailblazer. I, that's all I can always. say. I mean, I, I know it after all these years together. It's, it's exactly true. <laughs> but I think I think the idea about having to make such a rapid transition mm-hmm. has revealed a ton about a lot, uh-huh. and 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 one of it is, it is has exacerbated whatever disparities exist among students in their access to resources, has been greatly magnified by that. Right? I mean, that's a lot, and also, it's forced all of us to question that thing that I was doing that I'm not doing anymore. Was that really that important? Because it seems like things are going okay and I'm not doing that anymore. So, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of things and now opportunities to do things with technology that I think mo- most people would have been dragged kicking and screaming to do. Because, you know, I mean, if things are going well enough in your mind, I mean, you think that's good and the classes are good and everything, you know, where's the incentive to try anything different, even if somebody says, "Hey, you know this thing over here, you can, you might like that." Yeah, nice, but I'm you know busy. But but suddenly the rugs pulled out from everything, and now you got to figure out some way to do something totally new. That's that could be a tremendous opportunity. I mean, it's also a pain in the ass, but it could be a tremendous opportunity because you you you're forced to look at things that you might not have looked at. Before. But I, w- I want to return to this issue of failure. Because um, I listen. Must to we? Why are you looking at me? <laughs> no, I, no I, I didn't say a failure. I, 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 no, but you know, it's, what's fascinating to me is we do we do say to students all the time we want you to fail. Uh, but there's a principle I use when I talk to people in in the business world all the time. I, I say, look, there's what you say, what you do, and what you reward, and the people in your organization listen to those in reverse order. Okay, so, so you know, what you say is actually the least important thing. And then people are paying attention to what you do after that. And what's most important is what's being rewarded. And it turns out that, that when you look at this statement, I want you guys to fail, you say it. But, but as Jen pointed out, we almost never do it publicly. We don't, we don't admit to failing. And when we do, we kind of gloss over it. And uh, or apologize for it, as opposed to saying, "Look, it's a learning experience. I'll be better at this next week because I screwed this up this week." And then, what we generally do in in the way that we construct exams is we reward the people who make the the fewest mistakes, right? And so, the, the the best students from a grade standpoint are the ones who best engage in mistake minimization and not mistake recovery which is the, the skill that actually allows people to succeed 
afterwards. And so, you know, the, the opportunity to, to make corrections on exams, to write several drafts of papers, to, to try something that doesn't work, and just to explain why it didn't work and what you learned from it, and then to get full credit for that. That, those are the kinds of things that actually teach the skill of I failed and learned from it rather than I blew it. And, you know, because a lot of times people say, well, I'll give you the opportunity to make a quiz correction or a test correction, but you're going to get less credit for it. So what that says is when you, when you make a mistake and then correct it, that's actually less good than having known it all along, which I, is not actually true in the world. I have a question about that. I, I appreciate that. And yet... As an instructor, I can't figure out how to balance that system with encouraging people to put in no effort until the end. Like, how do you get them to produce effortful failure, if you will, as opposed to negligence failure? That's a great question. And I always believe in, in, in punishing, punishing negligence, not failure. You know, so I think there's two ways to do it. One is to the extent that you have an exam in which you can assess the difference between negligence and failure. If I write a one sentence answer to an essay, that's negligence. If I write a long answer to the essay and I get it wrong, that's failure. Um, so that's one place. But the other is, you know, to, to remind the students that, that when it comes to the opportunity to do things like test corrections, that, that if you wait until the last opportunity to do it, then that last opportunity is your first opportunity. So you haven't actually failed and then corrected. You've just failed. You've just waited to try until the end. So you've you've lost out on that opportunity. No, go sorry. ahead. Go ahead, Art. No, no. You no. go ahead. <laughs> After you. Okay. Well, I love them. I, I, I have to. I, I have to say. Oh, we do this. We're sitting in a studio together. Is, 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 uh, <laughs> I, 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 I would tell you that the, the idea, just the word failure, I, 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 we should stop using it because it's too, it's too much drama. You know what I mean? When, when, I, when, I, when people say you want students to fail, you, you don't want them to fail. You know, you don't want them to just have some catastrophe happen. You know? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't really. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, but I, but, I th but I think that word, the reason students don't believe it when teachers say that, because it's, it's overly dramatic. You know, and, and I, I just expunge that from my repertoire when I talk about this. I mean, I talk about error making and mistake making because those are things that are correctable in most people's minds, right? And, and I think the thing about our own failures, you know, one of the problems when students see our work is they see a published book or they see an article in a journal and it's great. Well, yeah, after, you know, however many iterations of the thing and editors whacking at it and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, some miscreants on the editorial board making me change my language or something, you know, I mean, all that's gone through. And then there's a thing, right? Or, or two, yeah. But, but, but when that happens, it, it, we, we don't allow anybody to see all that other stuff. Or we certainly don't make it easy for them to see all that other stuff, right? I mean, the thing is, if I'm in a chemistry class and I take the final and I make the bad grade, that grade, as my second grade principal used to say, Bob, this will now be on your permanent record. I mean, and, and it's and it's on your permanent record. When I submit a grant and it doesn't get funded, I write a better grant. 
You know, I, I mean, it's not on my permanent record. I, I, I don't, when you look at my Vita, it doesn't have my list of unfunded grant proposals, you know, and it's it, not. But, it, but Bob, it also doesn't have all of your bad grades. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so so there's a there's a mythology about the permanent record that. Exactly. Did. I just right. had to. Right. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you threw, threw, the, threw that in there. But but that that whole feature of what we do when we evaluate students and, 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 and Jen, to your question about because I think what you're asking about is how do you motivate people if there's not the opportunity? That, and I, I want to tell you, this sounds a little, you know, a little hoity toity in, in the wind a little bit. But, you know, there's there's two ways you can motivate people. You can threaten them or you can inspire them. And most grading procedures are threats of punishment. So students aren't studying me and thinking, wow, look what I'm learning. It's like, I got this test on Friday and if I get a bad grade, I'm gonna get, you know, and then I'm gonna lose my scholarship and then I'll never get into med school and, right? So, I mean, if that's your approach to learning, that's, that's pretty unhappy life. And when we think about what we know about learning, that idea of sort of gripping tight in order to get that grade is probably not that moment where our minds are open to really think and make those connections. So, Bob, you mentioned your second grade teacher. Let's think about sort of change over time in teaching and learning. Have you seen your students change over the years that you've been teaching? Well, I'll say this. I I think my students over the years have become, and I don't, I came here when I was 19, in, in 1985, I, I, so I've been here a long, long time. I, I joined the faculty when I was nine, but but I, I, I've been here for a very, very, very long time. But but what I see my students over the past 15 years or so have become increasingly stressed. Uh, at least that's what it seems like to me. Wow. Uh, and and I, but I don't think that all has to do with school. I think it has to do with all the other stuff that's not school, that's stress producing, you know? Uh, and a lot of it has to do with money uh, because many more of my students are ha- <clears throat> having to work and have other responsibilities that are not the privilege of just being a full-time college student. And, you know, you do your extracurriculars and have a great time and go to parties and it's lovely. You know, I mean, a lot of people are really working a lot. And I think there's a different social expectation about how socially participatory uh, life needs to be. You know, I think there are many people who feel like I need to go out on a certain number of nights, you know, to be, and, and I, I I don't think that's new. I think that's was ever thus, you know, but I think the other stressors about finances and, you know, all that kind of stuff is a little bit more. So I don't know if Art agrees with me or not. He's got that, I, I'm not sure, look on his face. Well, I, 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 I don't know. Part of the problem is I started my career teaching at Northwestern in Columbia before coming here in 98. And, and you know, the Columbia students were always stressed. I, you know, that just seemed to be a thing. But, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen is I, I think that, that students now are a little bit less willing to buy into our idea of what a college education is supposed to be. And, and the best evidence I have for that is that if you look at the College of Liberal Arts, for example, roughly 20% of our students are in one of the interdisciplinary majors. So IRG, health and society, human dimensions of organizations. And it's not just, I mean, there have always been programs that sat in between departments, but they didn't have, you know, a collectively several thousand majors. And I think that the, that the reason that those majors have become so popular 
is because students are walking in, think, you know, not thinking, I need to come and find a discipline, a traditional discipline that I need to study, but rather I need to, I need to do something that helps me to think about the relationship between my education and, and my future. And, and, and so our, the stu- our students are voting with their feet in a way that, that, that I did not see 20 years ago or 30 years ago. What you're saying, Art, makes me think a little bit about this sort of sense of an education being being practical. And sometimes I would sort of resist that in the sense that, you know, critical thinking and this sort of, um, you know, back when I was a college student, this impression that you you go to college for four years, you lock the key, that, you know, you stay there to sort of think and ruminate. Um, but, but, but what is practical maybe now is maybe this is going to be good news for study abroad and for experiential learning and students really wanting their education to make sense in the real world. Yeah. I don't believe in selling out though. Right. So I, my, my problem is, you know, part of the reason that we bristle at this idea that our students want a practical education is not because we're not teaching them deep skills, but that, but that, you know, it, it somehow sullies our disciplines to think that someone's going to come in and then primarily use this to, to do something mercenary when they get out. And, I, you know, look, if somebody learns something in one of my classes, that's great. And if they learn it and then they use it later, that's even better. And if they learn something in my class, use it later and then make a whole pile of money doing that, even better as long as they give some back to the university later, right? <laughs> I mean, right. so, you know, the fact that we as faculty are not motivated often by the financial rewards of, of what it is we chose to study doesn't mean that those people who are who are looking at the ways that that might assist in, in those efforts later are are wrong. And, and you know, I, I think this is kind of recycling something we were talking about about 20 minutes ago about what students think they're doing here. You know, I, I, I think, you know, novices impressions about what competence entails is that you know which levers to pull and which pedals to push when and in which order and that kind of thing. So just teach me to do that, right? And it's a hard sell to say, you know, when you study the Greek tragedies and really study them, you're going to understand something about the human condition and about thinking and that's a value to you because it's it's too, the, the, the payoff is too far away. Right. Um, unless you just dig the conversations that you have about, you know, Aeschylus or whatever you happen to be talking about. Right. So, I mean, <clears throat> but but I think, you know, Art's point about learners taking something that they find memorable and then they find occasion for that to seep into their life experience post college is 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 terrific. But that's not what many students are looking for. It's like I need you need to show me the usefulness of my expended effort right now. So and then I will invest the time in this. But if you don't do that, this is just some drudgery that you're making me do because I'm in your class and it's a requirement and I've, I, and I've got to do this, do this thing. But, you know, I, I get back to the idea of how reticent many of our colleagues are to talk about things they're not expert in. You know, I mean, most of the people I know who are happy college professors know a lot about a lot. But if the only thing you talk about in class is what's the, 
on the name of your department, you know, and you only talk about that, like that's all anybody knows. Well, then students think, why well, that, you know, that's all the piece of when you're an expert, that's it. You don't have any other interests. You don't know about any, anything else. And then, and then you realize if, when you do know all this other stuff, that's what makes me so good. It's not just that I have this real expertise in this very narrowly defined thing. I know about a lot of stuff which makes me much better at dealing with the really highly defined thing that's my official gig. But, but you know, it's interesting. Part of the reason why our students are very transactional in in wanting in, in, in the particular things that they're learning, meaning tell me, explain to me how this thing I'm learning is going to matter to me in my future is because we're very transactional in the way we teach it. Yeah. Right? We, we, we say, learn this thing, and then I'm going to test you on this thing, and your, your grade and therefore success in college is dependent on you learning this thing, as opposed to going to the students and saying, look, this is what your college education is about. You know, so so when you when you do things like say, here are the hidden lessons inside of your liberal arts classes, so that it's not it's not just about learning something about, you know, Nixon engaging with China for the first time. It's also about how do you learn to deal with groups that you've that you have no relationship with. Everything you learn has repercussions for how you see everything else that you do. And if we don't model that bit, if we don't, yeah. if we don't increase the time horizon over which we are, are saying the knowledge that people are, are learning in your class is useful, then they're going to want to know for each thing, who cares about this? Yeah. yeah. And, and Art brings up a really important point about the transactional nature of this. You know, somebody wrote a, an op-ed piece in the New York Times 20 years ago about, this was just becoming popular, this idea about we, the institution, we're the service provider, students are our consumers, you know, this, this kind of thing. I wrote a letter that got published in the New York Times as a, as a terrible model for learning, yeah. right? Because when, when you're in a, a, a business model, a transactional model like that, my goal as a consumer is, is to get as much of you from po as possible by giving you as little of my money as I have to. And my incentive as a service provider is to give you as little services as possible and take as much of your money as I can get. And I tell you, I know I keep saying this, this is the third time I've said it in one podcast, evaluation screws up everything. Because now, where's the transaction? It's the grades. You see, I have these points and they're very precious. And if you do what you're supposed to, I'll give you some. And, and, I, and I think oftentimes now this becomes, I mean, the reason that pre-med students, you know, need therapy because of their obsession with grades is, it, it, I mean, it isn't stupid, right? Is that the grades mean a lot. So I'll, I'll do anything to get that point. And one of these that we have to model is, yeah, point doesn't matter that much. Yeah, it, it wouldn't matter. You want another point? Okay, I'll give you another point. What I just said is heresy. And people will, will ask you, why did you let that lunatic on your <laughs> podcast saying that stuff? But I want to tell you something. Nobody can look at what we're doing right now and say, this is working great. You know? I also like to explain to my students all the time that I basically got B's in all my psych classes as an undergrad. Yeah. And, you know, here I am. And, and there he is. By the way, when I submitted a paper for publication, did I ever have to submit my undergraduate transcript along with it? Do yeah. you even remember what you got <laughs> besides your psychology scores? <laughs>
You know, guys, this has just been amazing. I have one last thing I've been dying to ask you forever. Collectively, clearly you have such chemistry and you have so much to teach others. And it's so much fun to listen to you talk. But how did you have the idea to get together and do a podcast and a radio show? Like, how'd that even start? Well, let me say first, it wasn't our idea. And then I'll let Art tell the story because Art Art tells the story great. Yeah, yeah, no, it's absolutely right. This is, this is actually, so, so, so actually what had, this is, this is, this is dumb luck magnified to, to the extreme. So, so here's, I'll tell this as quick as I can. The, the HDO program was starting and, and Amy Ware, who's the associate director at the time, is now director of the program. She and I were trying to figure out how to advertise the program in, in some way. So we called KUT and said, you guys do this thing called Views and Brews. Could we do like a soft sell of that uh, and, and, you know, of the program by talking about something fun and then mentioning HDO at some point? And they were like, sure, why not? And then, and here's the dumb luck part. I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go on. I'm going to, my book, Smart Thinking was just coming out. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about effective thinking. And I have this friend who's in the music school, who, who studies this stuff, who, who, and, and the Cactus Cafe is a music venue, which is utterly irrelevant. but but you somehow that all fit together so so i so i invited bob to come with me we did this and rebecca mcenroy who is the the producer of views and brews she we had a great time just talking with her and then and then this was in this was in february of, of of 2011 of 2012 sorry february 2012 and um she, she called us back in November and said, I'm scheduling for next year. You guys were so much fun. Would you come back and do another Views and Brews next year? And so we scheduled for April of the following year. And uh, and then we showed up and literally like eight seconds before we're about to walk up on stage, she looked at us and said, oh, I talked to the people at the station. Would you guys like a show? <laughs> and we stared at her and said, what? And she said, she said, well, think car talk, but for the mind. And we were like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Um, and, and we taped a pilot that thankfully nobody ever heard. And, uh, and, and they, they, on the basis of the pilot, they said, well, we'll give you a seven and a half minute segment on Fridays. And they, they said, this was August of 2013. They said, come in and tape four of them and we'll see how it goes. And halfway through August, uh, they called us back and said, tape a few more. And they never told us to stop. So we didn't. Yeah, I don't even think they know we're still doing it. Actually, I, I, I think uh, you know it was. They like, still was, think marketplace is playing. I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, all credit the the creative engine of this is Rebecca McEnroy. And I remember Jen when you were talking to me about the possibility of doing this, and you know, so how do you start this? Get a genius producer. Uh, that's uh, because she she is. She is the thing that makes this thing yeah. go. As Art, as Art often says, she takes, we <laughs> lay down on tape and she makes like a, 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 a ransom note out of it, clipping <laughs> words together so it makes us sound like we can speak in coherent sentences. It's very impressive yeah. on, on her part. I feel, I feel like we're having that same experience too. <laughs> with, with ours. You guys, it's been such a pleasure having you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having us. It's been great. And uh, Michelle, nice to meet you. And uh, do your best to make us look good, okay? <laughs> I don't know I if she can help will. you look good, Bob, but you uh, can That's right. Well, you've already worked with art, so you know it's a heavy lift, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I think you're up for it. I am, I am. Okay, all right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great Thanks, weekend. Guys. Thank you so let's, much. Let's get guys. this election over. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
So Jen, tell me what resonated with you. I tell you, I was really struck by the logic of what Bob was saying about the problem with the way we evaluate student learning and this transactional relationship that we have with students when in our core, we're just interested in engaging in intellectual dialogue and thinking about things deeply, yet we're working within this framework that's kind of antithetical to free learning, like learning and thinking in, in a way that kind of is open. So I really, that really made me think about, is it possible that I could change my class to meet more of that paradigm? Yeah, I agree. That sense of if we really were to model failure, what would that look like in the classroom? And not even modeling failure, but reward failure. I love that part where Art said, you know, it's the things that we say, the things that we do, and then what we reward. And really, students will see that, of course, you look at what you reward. And it made me immediately think of exams and the structure of my syllabus and what am I rewarding? I have not figured out yet how to reward that sense of progress over time. I liked Bob's suggestion, just remove failure from our lexicon. We'll use something else. Maybe it's truly just calling it learning. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. Yeah. But what Art is describing led me right to your key question is we have to play out some of those doubts. So some doubts would be, how do we differentiate between learning and just not bringing it? Mm-hmm. Right, your question. Another question I had is what about grade inflation? I hear sometimes from universities that this is a bad thing. If everybody does really well in your class and maybe a lot of high grades mean that students aren't learning or you aren't measuring their learning. And so it makes me think a little bit um, also about that. But what Art was describing was a fantastic process of first drafts, second drafts, third drafts, some reflection papers about what you learned and what changed over time. These are some techniques I can use. I love it. Yeah, it's it's really concrete techniques that we can think about. We're measuring learning in that case. We're not measuring, did you do it in this time point on this day and remember these things, which is so true. We all know that's true. And it's hard to tell my students that like once you're done with college and if you go to grad school, not professional school necessarily, but if you do a research degree or something like that, you're not going to be taking tests anymore. No one's going to say, quick, tell me X, Y, and Z of this pathway. You go look it up. <laughs> like, so, like, It's so hard. And I feel that tension all the time when I'm teaching my students, like, I know this is how I have to test you, but I really, I get that it's not authentic, really. Anyway, it gave me so much to think about. Me too. Me too. No, I liked it. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. We'll catch you next time. Very good, Jen. Take care. (laughs) Right. Bye. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you. Please feel free to answer each other, interrupt each other, do whatever you want to do. No. Never. Goes without saying. Yeah. Okay. That will require me to listen to what Bob's saying. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so this may be a new experience for everyone. It's but. always worth trying. To. <laughs> You're in here why, first, y'all. That's why, that's, that's why we're generally heavily edited. <laughs> See, Rebecca's just desperately trying to find something that sounds like I might have been paying attention. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
<laughs> love it. All right, y'all. Okay, I'm gonna get started. You said right. so. I gotta. I have to position my mic so I have good audio, but then I can't see what I'm reading. So yes, I will say I, I am in the living. Only knows what of creatures and human beings will pass by, but hopefully they won't interrupt us. Okay. And you're breaking up a tiny bit, which is okay. I don't mean to stress you, but I'm just letting you know what's happening. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you guys are you guys are a riot. <laughs> we are regular. Always fun. <laughs> All right, here we go. 